Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we will answer as we get our minds and heart on Jesus. Good afternoon, everyone. So happy to see you on this nice Sunday afternoon. There are many people that come to the Lord without much pomp and circumstance, like the many that we read through the pages of the book of Acts. Sometimes we get a whole story about a person. Sometimes in one sentence, many, many are baptized without any much detail. We've read about Cornelius, the interesting story behind him. Takes up a whole chapter. Simon the magician, the Ethiopian eunuch. In some, we don't get many lines at all. Just one sentence. Somebody was baptized. Many people were baptized. As I was trying to recall the many people that I've come to know to come to Christ, that's exactly what's happened with many of them. They were met with or they visited the church. One of you studied with them and they heard the good news and accepted it with a glad heart, and they were added to the kingdom of heaven, as some of the pictures that you see behind me. There are two sisters that I recall back in 2000, Clary's two aunts, Terry, uh, that's her aunt Terry, and the other one was Jeanette. I'll show you a picture of her in a moment. When we met them in 2000, they were not believers. Now, their husbands were believers. Caveat, The scriptures encourage us to marry believers in the Lord for obvious reasons, but sometimes that doesn't happen. Some take risks, and they often don't end well, but some do, and we rejoice those times that they do end well. And that was Therese. She was in the class. She participated. She heard the good news, and she wanted to become a Christian, and she did get baptized. This is a picture of Jeanette, actually, on the day that she got baptized in 2006, six years later. So we had approached each of them individually, asked them if they knew the gospel, and from there we began a Bible study. Mind you, they had been going to the church for a while now, but nobody had ever asked them to study the Bible, or nobody ever asked them if they knew the gospel. Nobody had ever asked them if they wanted to commit their lives to Christ until we came along and we asked the question. The other one, though, when I asked her about why she hadn't become a Christian, why hadn't she given her life to Christ, she said, well, you know, I don't really like one of the elders in the church. So, And I said to her, but you keep coming to church anyway, don't you? And she said, yeah, so why are you letting one person prevent you from the gift that God is going to give you? And after I asked her that question, she didn't hesitate and decided to get baptized. It's funny what sometimes holds some people back from giving their lives to the Lord. And so our job is to help them get through these things so that they can enjoy life in Christ. Just like the turtles, right, that are born, scurry through the sand, and then get into that nice water and start a brand new life there. So we're in Acts chapter 13. This is a milestone. Many Bible commentators feel that this chapter is a distinct break in the entire book of Acts. Some even go as far as calling it Acts part 2 or the second volume of Acts because we're going to see a significant shift in how the events are recorded, especially with Paul. It, It is in this chapter where we read about Saul now being called Paul. Now the Apostle Paul 
has definitely taken the place of prominence. Before it was Peter, we read a couple of Peter's sermons and saw how he was evangelizing, but now Paul is going to take the place of prominence in his first missionary journey, which occurs here in Acts chapter 13. The narrative moves now to Paul being the prominent figure, and soon Luke is going to join them when we start seeing the narrative change when Luke includes himself now. Notice that there are two Antiochs. Okay, don't get confused. The church started out in Antioch, right above Seleucia up there. That's actually called Antioch in Syria. That's where the big church was, where they were first called Christians. And Paul's first missionary journey is going to first lead him to the island of Cyprus. And our brother Mike is going to cover that in Bible class, God willing. And today we're going to talk about the second stop in Perga and then immediately in Antioch of Pisidia. And that's two different Antiochs right there, so we don't get confused. Let's start at the beginning, though, of Acts chapter 13 to notice some dynamics occurring here. We got Barnabas, we got Simeon called the Black, Lucius from Cyrene, Manaean, who interestingly was a close friend of Herod since childhood. Figure that out. And then we have Saul. These guys were prophets and teachers in the church in Antioch. Something interesting to note, that the church slowly started to get organized. There were still no elders. There were no deacons. There were the 12. There were the seven who stayed in Jerusalem mostly, although some of the seven kind of like went out there into Samaria and started to go forth. Here in this church, as they started to get organized, as they started to get big, we noticed that there were prophets and teachers, and these were the leaders of the church in Antioch, as we will see from the rest of the narrative. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set Barnabas and Saul apart for me. I want them to do the work for which I called them. After fasting and praying, Simeon, Lucius, and Menaean placed their hands on Barnabas and Saul and released them from their work in Antioch. So there's some interesting dynamics happening here before that first missionary journey takes place. And we're going to touch on the visit to Pamphylia and Antioch of Pisidia. So in verse 13, it says, Paul and his men took a ship from Paphos and arrived in Perga, a city in Pamphylia. And John Mark deserted them there and went back to Jerusalem. Remember John Mark? Uh, we saw him, I believe it was a chapter or two ago, when Peter escaped from prison and he went to Mary's house, Mary the mother of John Mark. And we spoke a little bit about who this man was. John Mark, probably the author of the Gospel of Mark, a cousin of Barnabas and very close to Peter. Most of the details that he got for the Gospel of Mark, many believe he got them from Peter. And here we start to see a change in the narrative, a change in the leadership, where now Paul begins to take this prominent position. It's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Paul and, and another person. Paul begins to take the center stage here. But something happens in this first, in the second landing in their first missionary trip. We have John Mark deserted them. That's, that's not a nice thing to write. It's not like John Mark left. It doesn't say that. It says he deserted them. So it's something in the negative. And Paul was so dissatisfied with this occurrence that when they take the second missionary journey, which we will read about in Acts chapter 15, he had such a sharp disagreement with Barnabas because he brought up, Barnabas wanted to take his cousin, John Mark, 
And Paul said, no, he's not coming. You can see a sharp dispute occurs there right before the second missionary trip takes place. But eventually, Mark does regain a confidence with the Apostle Paul. And we read about that in 2 Timothy 4, 11. And so Paul and Barnabas left Perga and arrived in Antioch. This is a different Antioch. Remember, this one is near Pisidia. And on the day of rest, the holy day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So the strategy seemed to be, as we look through these beginning chapters in the book of Acts, that whenever they went to a city, they went to the synagogue. Their strategy was to preach to the Jews first. And so almost in every city, you can see how the Jews were starting to kind of move out. We call that the diaspora partly because of persecutions by the Roman Empire, partly because this is the nature of things. And so they used to target those synagogues. So they went to preach there on a Saturday. And so this is what Paul is going to do. We're going to read Paul's first gospel sermon here when he preaches it at this city. Verse 15 says, After reading from Moses' teachings and the prophets, which is what they used to do in the synagogues, the synagogue leaders send a message to Paul and Barnabas. And the message said, Brothers, if you have any words of encouragement for the, for the people, feel free to speak. This lets me know that Paul and Barnabas were already known. The church there had gotten significantly big. And so Paul was known before when he was Saul. And now he's known as Paul. And now we're going, we're going into the first recorded sermon, verses 17 through 41. I'm not going to read the entire sermon. You can study it at home. But there are some highlights worthy to be noted in this sermon. It seems to be a combination of Stephen's sermon and Peter's style. Peter, we know, preached the first gospel sermon. Stephen preached a long sermon, and he kind of went all the way back and recounted all the Jewish history. Paul doesn't go that far back in the sermon, but he does seem to have that same train of thought, recalling some of the major events in Jewish history before his Jewish brethren that day in the synagogue. And so he begins the sermon by retelling this Jewish history beginning from Exodus. And Peter's use of the Psalms, making the same arguments concerning Jesus' body not decaying, as uh, David's body was buried and, and it decayed, but Jesus' body was buried, but he did not decay, but he was rose from the dead. Paul touches on that same use of Peter's point about that. In verse 18, we know how Paul's disposition is one of seeming sympathy with how God put up with his people during those 40 years in the wilderness. The text really emphasizes how hard-hearted they were, how stubborn they were. We see Paul sympathizing with God. Man, he had to put up with us, with our ancestors, for 40 years in the wilderness. Paul stresses the forbearance and the patience of God during this time where there was much rebellion. So Paul is starting to build up a case and he's hoping, right, that his audience that he's teaching this gospel to is going to be more willing to listen to this good news. That they're not going to be the same as the other ancestors. Because the theme running in a lot of these sermons in the book of Acts is, yeah, you know, our people have been hard-hearted and they have killed the prophets and they have rejected the Lord. And we hope that you don't do the same thing as we're telling us, telling you this good news it, they seem to have that running theme. And we're going to see that running theme here with Paul's first sermon or first recorded sermon. He might have made others, but this is the first recorded one. 
The next point that Paul brings up here in verse 21 through 22 is how the Israelites' hardness of heart caused them to reject God as king because they wanted a man to be their king. Have you ever wanted to read the Bible in plain English, a language that you can actually understand and follow? Well, there is a translation like that called God's Word Translation by God's Word to the Nations Mission Society. This is the only translation of the Bible in English that follows a dynamic equivalent translation philosophy. It makes the Bible very easy to understand and it flows very naturally in the English language. You can follow along my podcast where I read to you from God's Word Translation for one whole year. You can search for the podcast on Spotify or your favorite podcast reader. Search for God's Word Translation by God's Word to the Nation Mission Society. You can also look it up under my name, Pedro Gelibert. Paul weaves these themes of Israel's stubbornness to appeal to the Jew, to hopefully get them to think and say, oh, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like my ancestors. Yeah, I see what you're saying, Paul. You know, we've been pretty stubborn. Our ancestors have been pretty stubborn in the past. Well, I don't want to be like that. Then the people demanded a king. So God gave them Saul, son of Kish, from the tribe of Benjamin. And after 40 years, God removed Saul and made David their king. Notice what he's going to say here. God spoke favorably about David. He said, I have found that David, son of Jesse, is a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So Paul brings up this theme of a person that was pliable enough for God to work with them. Somebody who wanted to work with God, not somebody who rejected God or who was stubborn. And so he's appealing to the Jews, hoping that they remain open to the good news. Introducing David, a favorite of all of Israel, and harping on the fact that he is a man after God's own heart, wanting to do what God wants him to do. Even though David had trouble and did uh, many wrong things, just like Saul did. But what was Saul's attitude, even in facing his own sin? He wanted to justify himself, didn't he? But David, when his sin was brought up before him by the prophet Nathan, what was David's attitude? He repented. He wanted to do the right thing. And so we see two characters, faulty, absolutely faulty, just like we all are. However, despite his sins, David never lost his love for God. He repented of his sin. He acknowledged them. He sought God's forgiveness. Therefore, we affirm his relationship with God. And Paul then quickly connects Jesus to this lineage of David right here. God had the Savior Jesus come to Israel from David's descendants as he has promised. So Jesus is a type of man just like David, just like his forefather, who is after God's own heart. But the difference is that Jesus didn't have any sin. Because the work that he was to do here when he came as a man was to take up our sin and bear it on the cross. Paul moved at once, now that he brings Jesus to the forefront of his message, to prove Jesus' messiahship. 
This was very important for Paul. And I like how Paul frames his argument. Paul is very logical. He thinks like a lawyer. That's what he was. And he was very methodical in hitting all his points. And when you examine his outlines of his sermons, they follow this very logical thought. As you can see right here, he's talking about their ancestors. He made the point how their ancestors were hard-hearted, how they rejected God. But God put up with them. God is very patient. And then he brings up one major ancestor, David. Look, even though he was at fault, even though he sinned, he loved God. And so through him, the Son of God now comes on the scene. Now, why is the Son of God so important? Who is this Jesus? And he proceeds now to make a three-point lesson on Jesus' Messiahship. Citing as proof, number one, the testimony of John the Baptizer in Acts chapter 13, verses 24 through 25, and the fulfillment of the prophecy of his rejection in Acts 13, 26 through 29. So he's using prophecy here as part of his lesson to prove that Jesus indeed was the one that God had sent as a promise to deliver his people in the likeness of Moses. Moses had talked about that in Deuteronomy, how God was going to send someone in his likeness a powerful prophet, and God was going to do even more miracles through him. Well, this is Jesus Christ. And last but not least, of course, the resurrection from the dead was a big proof point in Paul's lesson. So in speaking of the fulfillment of prophecy, Paul makes the distinction between spiritual and secular Israel, something that he goes in depth in the letter to the Romans. But here we're just going to kind of gloss over it a little bit. He says here in verse 27, the people who live in Jerusalem and their rulers did not know who Jesus was. They didn't understand the prophet's messages, which are read every day of rest, a holy day. Now notice the point that he's making here. They didn't know. He's talking to his people. He's talking to the Jews and the Jews from when they were little kids. They read the Bible. They studied the scripture. That's what they not only did in synagogue, but that's what they did in their school. They knew these scriptures. This was part and parcel of Jewish life. But Paul is stressing here, even though they lived in Jerusalem and they had all these customs, they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know who he was. And they didn't understand the messages that they were reading every single week. They did not understand what's happening here. So, as a result, he says, they condemned Jesus and fulfilled what the prophets had said. Although they couldn't find any good reason to kill him, they asked Pilate to have him executed. This is an important lesson for us, brothers and sisters, because we're here in the church. There is a second generation, for some of us a third generation, rising up in our very midst. And this new generations, they're hearing the words. At least once a week, we know they are. Hear from the pulpit. We read the word of God. We talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The question is, as Paul is bringing out here, do you know what we're talking about? I ask you, second and third generation among us, do you know what we're talking about here? Or is it just something that you say, well, that's just something my mom and dad do. And I just kind of come along for the ride. In speaking to Muslims and Jews in my community when I lived in Queens, it wasn't rare to notice that many of the Jews there, they were not Jews religiously or spiritually. 
They were secular Jews, which is what Paul is going to distinguish now here. In other words, they were Jews in name only. Oh, yeah, they went to synagogue. Oh, yeah, they knew what the Torah was. But when I asked them, don't you believe what Moses did? What do you think about what Moses said about that prophet that was going to come? What do you think about that? Oh, you know, I, that's just a story. Those are just stories we were told when we were kids. And so to my surprise at the time, I was like, so you hear the Torah and you read the Torah, but you don't believe the Torah. Is that what I'm hearing you say? And they all admitted it. Now, this is not just a phenomenon among the Jews. I asked some Muslims in my community, especially second and third generation Muslims, the same question. I know a little bit about the Quran. I've read, I studied the Quran. So I proceeded to ask them and question them about their belief about the Quran. And I got the same answer. Oh, it's, it's just what mom and dad believe. We go to mosque every Friday. Uh, but yeah, it's just something that we do. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything to me. I said, for real? You don't really believe in, in, in Jesus? Because, you know, the Quran talks about Jesus. And they were like, really, it does? I said, yeah. And they didn't know the Quran. What about you, Long Island Church of Christ? What about you, second generations and third generation young people among us? Is the same going to be said of you? That you're just here in the midst, you're hearing the word, but you don't know who the Messiah is? Because there's a difference between Hearing his name, oh yeah, Jesus, we talk about him every Sunday. But do you know him? Do you understand why we do this every single week? Do you? Because if you don't, what's going to happen is the same thing that the Jews did here. In their hearts, they're going to reject the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. They're going to condemn him. Now, back then, 2,000 years ago, they condemned him to death when he came here as a person. You, though, might be condemning him in a different way. In reality, your rejection of him might result in your own condemnation. And so this is an important point to understand. Paul moves on to the greatest proof of all, and that is the resurrection of Christ. He says, but God brought him back to life. And for many days he appeared to those who had come with him to Jerusalem from Galilee. These people are now witnesses and are testifying to the Jewish people about him. Now this is something that should be in the hearts of every young people here. Because we're not, we didn't make these stories up. And the fact that there's proof for the resurrection of Christ is something to be noted. It's something to take into your heart and realize, wow, mom and dad are not just here because it's something that they do, but they really believe that this man, Jesus Christ, came back to life and that he is actually alive and that he's going to come back one day. That is the core of what should bring us here every first day of the week. Who are you here for? If you like this podcast, please show your support by clicking on the support link on my Anchor FM profile. You will find the link listed in the description of the podcast on your favorite podcast app. With your support, I will continue to produce authentic Christian content as the Lord allows me to do. Who are you here for? 
Paul brings up the same argument Peter had in his sermons concerning the body of Christ. Watch it right here. God stated that he brought Jesus back to life and that Jesus' body never decayed. He said, I will give you the enduring love promised to David to show us that indeed this man Jesus is the Messiah. And so Jesus, yes, he had been given a body. And that is a fundamental part of the doctrine of Christianity. That Jesus came here in a body just like yours, just like mine. Because there was a purpose to his mission. The first one was to suffer, was to walk in our shoes, to get to know us in a very intimate way. And more deeper than that, which is something that still blows our minds to this day, to take our sin, all our imperfections, all our faults, and to carry them on his perfect body. Because Jesus did not commit any sin. But he came free of sin to take up our sin so that we now could live free of sin once we've taken him as Lord and Savior. That was part of his mission. So the fact that he had a frail human body and that when he died and he was risen, he was given a brand new body. He is the prototype. And that's what he's calling Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, that word translated the firstborn is the Greek word prototokos, which means prototype. Prototype of what? He's the first model of life 3.0. We're the old model. We get sick. We decay. <laughs> Eventually, our bodies will decay. But the point that he makes here, and that Peter also made in his first sermon, is that Jesus' body never decayed because he belongs to the new humanity. Only Jesus can do this. And this, believe it or not, is part of his message of the gospel, that there is a new body, a new life promised to you. But you have to make him your Lord and Savior. You can't be like these Israelites that were rebellious. Here, Paul says, brothers, I'm telling you that through Jesus, your sins can be forgiven. He's closing up the message now. Sins kept you from receiving God's approval through Moses' teachings. However, everyone who believes in Jesus receives God's approval. So see, on your own, doing what you want to do, making yourself your own boss, you're not going to get God's approval that way. Might not get anybody's approval. Not even your own. Because frankly, you don't know what you're doing. You can't manage your life. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. If you did, then you wouldn't be looking at TikTok or Facebook or these other places to get some kind of direction. So don't fool yourself. There's really only one who made you, who knows what's going to be best for you. And he has a path for you. But he's not going to force you into that path. He wants you to willingly take it. God doesn't force anybody. He's a gentleman. And so he tries to appeal to you, which is what Paul is telling them. It's through Jesus that your life can have a do-over. Everybody wants a do-over. But when it comes to Christ, it seems nobody wants that do-over. That's really the only great do-over you'll ever get. 
Only through Jesus, Paul says, can you start again. Can you have your sins forgiven, start over. And not only that, but gain his approval. Because no longer are you going to be directing your own life, following your own heart, which is a crazy heart, which leads you to do crazy things and think crazy things. But no, you surrender that to God. And now you're going to get somewhere. Sin disqualifies. But Jesus made atonement for us to regain that position of honor. Because in the garden, when we go back to Genesis, God made man and woman to co-rule with him. But then we thought, oh, well, God, why do we need you? We're going to do it all ourselves. And that started with Cain. Started to depart from God, thinking that, oh, just because God gave me the authority, I'm going to have my own authority now. No, there is no authority apart from God. And if you try to seek it apart from him, you're not going to have his approval, and you're going to end up in the grave with no 3.0 body, sorry. There's only one way to life. Go and find the original plan back. That's what Paul is saying here. Come back to God. And he ends the message with this warning. Be careful or what the prophet said may happen to you. And he's, he's quoting here from Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5. Look you mockers. Because that's what people who reject God are. They're mockers. Once you think you can have control over your own life and that you know what you're doing, you're a mocker. Mostly mocking yourself because you really don't know what you're doing. You mockers, be amazed and die. <laughs> That's going to be your life. <laughs> I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if it was reported to you. Isaiah exclaimed, who has believed our message? God did something amazing, but who has believed it? Unfortunately, not many. Few are the ones that find the narrow gate and enter into life. Many are those who'd rather go through the wide gate that lead to destruction. They were not amazed, so they die. They didn't believe the message. Notice how Paul is trying to appeal to them, right? Now he's at, a, at an emotional level appealing to them, quoting from the prophets here. Will you believe, he's telling his audience, just like I'm telling you, young people, second and third generation, will you believe or will you doubt? Will you lean on your own heart and understanding or will you reject your heart in favor of letting God be your Lord? With this challenge, Paul ends the sermon. And apparently the sermon was well received so that they were invited to speak a week later. And the week later in verse 44, almost the whole city is gathered there to hear the word of the Lord. So there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of enthusiasm. We're going to hear the word of the Lord. But at this point, the ugly head of jealousy rises up again. Guess among who? Among the mockers. Among those who reject God. And who introduce doubt. And who introduce the human heart as opposed to God's things. They try to contradict Paul. And here we pick it up in verse 46. Paul and Barnabas tell them boldly, We had to speak God's word to you first, but since you reject the word and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are now going to turn to people of other nations. The Lord gave us the following order. I have made you a light for the nations so that you would save people all over the world. The Gentiles were extremely pleased. We read about this here in verse 48. 
They were pleased. They praised God. And everyone who had been prepared for eternal life believed in the Lord. And the word of the Lord spread to the whole region. So we see a response here, which is the response God is looking for. Number one, be glad with what you're hearing. Wow, is this great. Like God said through Isaiah, who has believed? Even God was like, who among these hard-hearted people are going to believe? Even if it's just you, even if it's one, be glad of the good news that you hear. Be pleased, be excited, and praise the word of God. Some versions will say they honored the word of the Lord. That means they treated the message with dignity and with amazement and, and took it into their heart and said, you know what? I'm going to let the Lord be the Lord of my life. And many obeyed the gospel. It says here, everyone who had been prepared for eternal life believed. Some versions would say those who were appointed for eternal life believed. What does that mean? That means they got recognized by God. They said, I want to be on God's side. And so they received eternal life. That's a synecdoche. Again, remember, although the passage doesn't say that they believed, they repented, they baptized. That's implied in the synecdoche that they received eternal life. They believed. They did it. Because there's only one way to do it. That's the pattern. To believe, to repent. You have to turn from your life and turn to God in order to accept His message. You can't continue believing in yourself and leaning on your heart and call yourself a Christian. No, that's not going to happen. You might fool people, but you're not, you can't fool God. So there is a turning to God. And then there's that immersion, that baptism in water for the forgiveness of sins. That is the pattern. There's only one pattern. There is not another pattern. That is the pattern we see here in the book of Acts. When people come to a knowledge of the truth, they are glad about it. They don't argue. They don't introduce doubt. They don't fight. They don't mock. They're glad. They receive the word. And they become believers. So we end this chapter with the jealous Jews stirring up the people, persecuting Paul and Barnabas, throwing them out of the territory. So Paul and Barnabas, they do what Jesus taught them to do. They shake the dust off their feet, <laughs> which is a sign like, yeah, well, you know, deal with your situation there. But we're not going to, we, we divorce ourselves from your choice. We're going to keep moving forward, which is what we ought to do when we are presented with mockers or with people who don't want to believe. We keep moving forward. And they went on onto Iconium, which we're going to talk about, God willing, in the next week. And the last sentence in chapter 13 is, the disciples in Antioch continue to be full of joy and the Holy Spirit. So despite rejection, despite opposition, there is joy in the life of a disciple. There is trouble. I'm not going to lie to you. A Christian will experience more stress, more distress, more opportunity for depression, more opportunity for anxiety than a normal person in the world. I do admit that. But at least in Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, we know how to deal with that because God gives us joy to mitigate that. Whereas if you're in the world and you're depressed or anxious or sad, what are you going to do? Change jobs, change relationships, take medication. I mean, what's going to help you? In Christ, we continue forward full of joy and full of the Holy Spirit. This tells us that the Christian's joy does not depend on the external circumstance here or on our environment. Regardless of who the president is, who our governor is, 
I may not like the president. I may not like the governor. Hey, I really don't like most of the people who are politicians. Never did. But they're not my politicians. I've already passed away from this world. I'm just here in my avatar that's getting older and older by the day. But inside, I'm being renewed day by day. And I have a king. I pledge allegiance to him. He's my king. He's the reason I'm here. And, and that's where I'm going. Will you join me on that path? God bless you. Have a great afternoon.